So good evening. I notice that the evening everybody seems to disappear into the back of the room. <laughs> we should have those bleacher stands, you know, going into the into the ceiling, <laughs> so you can have better views. <laughs> so um, this evening, I want to talk about different facets of the heart. You know, I like to think of the heart, the in the heart. Uh, I prefer the word. The, the Pali word chitta, which means heart-mind, because I, when I say the heart, I don't just mean the heart, I mean this heart-mind that's very central to our being. So it's, I like to think of it as like a, a multifaceted jewel, slightly holographic, that shifts according to the conditions and the environments and the situations that it meets. So uh, as the Buddha talked about, um, Classically, about the Brahma Viharas, the Brahma Viharas are what he would call divine abodes, the divine, sublime places that the heart can reside in, that we can reside in, that we can, these qualities that we can develop that are very sublime. Uh, the core of the, the central quality being the quality of loving kindness, which we're developing here. Um, and when that heart of kindness meets or encounters or feels or senses or is touched by the pain, <coughs> the suffering of ourselves or another or the world, it naturally, uh, the, the, the color shifts to the quality of compassion, which is similar to, to loving kindness, but it's the quality of heart that, that, um, that when, we, when we meet suffering has that quality of care, of tenderness, of of wishing to relieve uh, the pain. And similarly, when that heart, that open heart, meets joy in the world, meets happiness, beauty, success in somebody else, in ourselves, in the world, it again shifts into a slightly different quality of mudita, which is appreciative joy. It's the, it's the quality of the heart that can delight and um, rejoice in the happiness of another in the happiness of the world, in the happiness of uh, ourselves. So I want to talk about those two qualities this evening because I'm sure at different times you've been noticing them, you've been feeling them, and so it helps to sometimes uh, have them articulated and have a little more of the map laid out. And the last of the, of the divine abodes, the Brahma Vihara's equanimity, um, which really underpins all of these qualities, uh, Sharon will talk about tomorrow. So it doesn't take a PhD to understand that being in this world and being a conscious human being, or even being an unconscious human being, uh, there's a lot of both joy and sorrow. There's a lot of beauty, a lot of light, and a lot of darkness, a lot of pain, a lot of cruelty and, and harshness and violence. And it's, it's quite challenging, as you've seen, even in these ideal circumstances that we create here at IMS, where there's nothing much to do and we've sort of minimized distractions and, you know, email and phone and having to choose and decide and interact and make money. And even in these very placid uh, conditions, it's still challenging to maintain an open, loving heart. Of course, you know, you, it's so easy to see how the heart congeals and contracts and gets in fear and anxiety. 
and even more so when we're out and about in our day and we're in, in dealing with relationships and the world and um, it's a challenging to to maintain this open presence this connect and this connected heart uh, so I want to talk about the need this evening, um, the, the necessity that we have a heart that's really quite sensitive and tender to the vulnerability, to the, to, uh, you know, the Buddha talked about the human condition being dukkha, being in, inherently unsatisfactory. This, this sort of this existential angst that sort of pervades our lives and our experience. Even if we have everything that we wished for and every condition satisfied, there's still a sense of dis-ease or fear or sense of being unfulfilled in some way. And so, uh, uh, and I think, it's, and I'll talk more about this as, as I, the talk goes on, as we, as we deepen in our spiritual practice, I think it becomes even more uh, necessary to have these qualities of kindness and meeting our experience with some, with some tenderness and some warmth. So, a little story for you, which um, sometimes stories and poems which I like to use uh, really just speak to what I'm trying to say in a much more poetic way. So, this is a story from a doctor, from a surgeon, who's standing. He says, I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy and clownish. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She will be thus from now on. As surgeon, I had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh, I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me in private. Who are they, I ask myself? He and this wry mouth, who gaze and touch each other so generously. The woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say. It is because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. He's kind of cute. All at once I know who he is. I understand, and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with a god. Unmindful of my presence, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth, and I'm so close I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate hers, to show her that their kiss will still work. I remember that the gods appeared in ancient Greece as mortals, and I hold my breath and let the wander in. So I love that, because it's such a simple story, and yet so tender and so poignant and how perfectly we can meet the suffering in another person with, with love and tenderness. So if, if, you, if that story moved you in any way, um, you may be sensing what the Buddha talked about when he said, compassion is like a quiver in the heart. It's, the, it's, the, it's that visceral resonance or, um, you know, Quiver is a really good word because we feel that um, physical almost uh, resonance, empathy, tenderness. So it's our capacity to be able to feel another person, feel the suffering, and to resonate it in our own experience. 
So this happens a lot often when we're on retreat and somebody is crying or upset. And there's just that natural uh, empathic understanding of the, f- the, of the, the commonality of suffering. And it touches us. It's, it shows us how connected we are. In that moment, there's an immediate response. Not always empathic. Sometimes we shut down or we ignore it. It's a feeling, it's a quality that's very tender, that's very um, sensitive. And this happens, uh, this quality comes out a lot at Spirit Rock where I teach because we have these um, uh, beautiful swallows uh, who nest uh, above the bathrooms by the meditation hall. And you have to go outside every time to use the bathroom. Um, and they nest in the summer, and they, you know, so they're, they're young, are feeding, uh, hanging out in the nests for many months. And so you, you go, as you go in and out of the bathroom, you see these teeny little quivering forms just popping their heads out, you know, waiting for mom to bring some food. And it just, you know, after meditating for a few days, the heart's so open and, and sensitive, you just, you know, it almost bleeds with the, you just want to, you know, gather them up and take them home and feed them. And, but mom wouldn't be very happy about that. St. John of the Cross says, Tenderly I now touch all things, knowing one day we will part. That's another aspect of our compassion, is we, we understand the fragility of life. And we, we experience it in our own lives, in the lives of our loved ones. And so by um, association and by, you know, we can, we, can, we can understand that same fragility in others. So it's the natural feeling of wanting to care. Very ordinary, very common, very human impulse. Someone's in suffering, someone's in pain, in distress, a friend, someone we don't know. And the heart just, you know, it's, uh, the, the, the quality of compassion is not just a feeling, it's a movement of the heart, and it's a movement to act, a movement to want to relieve pain. And just as I talked about metta in being somewhat innate to the heart, um, compassion is also has that similar quality of, of being inherent, an inherent capacity of everybody's hearts. And I, I'm going to read this story, another story um, that speaks to this, and it's, a, it's quite a moving story. It's from um, D.S. Bennett, who uh, is talking about an experience she had in childhood. She says, my mom always assured me that unspeakable punishments were bound to befall any child as naughty as I was. She said, if I were you, I'd be afraid to go to sleep at night for fear God would strike me dead. (laughs) She would speak these words softly and regretfully as though saddened by her errant daughter's fate. After describing years of violence, uh, of abuse and violation, Bennett goes on, the most devastating words my mother ever spoke to me came when I asked her if she loved me. I had just been escorted home by the police after one of my many attempts to run away, so it was kind of bad timing on my part. She answered, how could anybody ever love you? It took me almost 50 years to heal the damage from her ugly remarks. Recently, I remembered a childhood ritual of mine mine that, that helped me survive. From the age of five or six until I was well into my teens, Whenever I had trouble sleeping, I would slip out from under my covers and steal into the kitchen for a bit of bread or cheese, which I would carry back with me. There I'd pretend with my hands, there I'd pretend my hands belonged to someone else, a comforting, reassuring being without a name, an angel perhaps. 
The right hand would feed me little bits of cheese or bread as the left hand stroked my cheeks and hair. My eyes closed. I would whisper softly to myself, there, there, go to sleep. You're safe now. Everything will be all right, and I love you. So I love that story because it speaks to the incredible capacity we have, no matter what difficulty we go to, there's this tremendous strength and inner resourcefulness and this innate understanding of knowing what it takes to navigate those difficult circumstances. And, and, and for her, it was she became the love that she never received. This is a slightly more humorous way of looking at that, this innate capacity or innate quality we have of compassion. So it's from F Gary Larson, The Far Side. And um, he's in hell, we're in hell. And Satan's looking really unhappy. He comes out from the gates of hell and uh, there's a bunch of new arrivals coming in and he's shouting, mom, mom, no. And the cartoon, the, underneath this cartoon, it says, despite his repeated efforts to explain things to her, Satan could never dissuade his mother from offering cookies and milk to the accursed. <laughs> and she's carrying a little tray with a little apron and little <laughs> devil's tail sticking out from her apron. And so there you have it. We can't stop ourselves from offering, you know, So we feel it on a personal level. Sometimes we feel it on a more global level. When we hear about what's happening to the earth, when we hear about species being endangered, when we hear about species becoming extinct, when we hear about naval sonar affecting the, 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 the ears of the whales and causing them to beach and things like that, we feel this quality of compassion on many different levels. So it can be very specific, very personal, but also it can be very global, just feeling the weight of suffering in the world when we hear about, you know, the latest famine or, you know, earthquake or, you know, global catastrophe, um, the heart responds with that sense of, that sense of you know, empathic resonance. And so I think in, in that way, uh, compassion really uh, allows us to see how connected we are, how universal our experience is, how, you know, how it kind of cuts through this, this idea that we live in a bubble, that we live in isolation, that we live separately, that we really are mutually interdependent, mutually affected and affecting each other all the time. As a Brahma Vihara, this, this quality of compassion, as I said, is imbued with some understanding, with, with a quality of equanimity, with a flavor of equanimity that allows us to hold steady in the face of suffering. When we don't have that equanimity, when we're resisting and struggling and trying to not let in the reality of pain or suffering, that of course creates more suffering for ourselves. But the, 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 the equanimity allows, allows a certain steadiness of compassion to, to stand in the face of suffering and say, this is how it is. This is how it is. Suffering is like this. 
pain is like this and still have an open heart. So how do we, how do we, you know, just like as a metta is both innate quality and something that we can develop and, and deepen and, and grow, the same with, with compassion, that we, we start off with a certain capacity and we can also strengthen and grow this quality. So the way compassion arises and can be developed is by looking at our relationship to suffering, looking at how we relate to pain and suffering in our lives. So in the first step of any movement to suffering, to, to compassion, is to acknowledge the truth of suffering, to look, to be willing to look at suffering, look at pain in the face, to not be running from it, to not be avoiding it, to not be uh, doing all the other things that we might do to not have to feel suffering. Nobody, nobody really wants to feel pain and suffering. Is there anybody in here who wants to feel suffering? Just in case, yeah, okay. So it's, it's in some ways it's counterintuitive. It's, it's a lot of practice can feel counterintuitive. Why would I want to go towards pain? Aren't we supposed to be, you know, feeling happy and getting off the wheel of suffering? Why would I want to go towards it? Ajahn Chah had this lovely phrase. He said, by running away from suffering, we run towards it. And we spend most of our time running away from suffering. But you've noticed how it catches up with us. Never quite, we can never quite fully evade it. By turning towards suffering, by acknowledging that this is suffering, whatever experience we're having, particularly in ourselves, it allows the heart to open. When we're sitting with our experience and we're feeling sadness or anxiety or some of the hindrances or loneliness, and we can recognize, oh, this is suffering. This is the first noble truth the Buddha talked about, that there is suffering in life. It allows, what happens is we meet that experience. And because we're not resisting that experience, it allows the heart to open. Oh yeah, this is suffering. And then the heart's natural response is, oh, may you be free of suffering. So, but we first have to notice it, acknowledge it, meet it, and open to it. which of course isn't that easy. You know, sometimes we can have days or weeks or years or periods in our lives where there's a lot of suffering. Suffering from our past, from our conditioning, from our childhood, emotional suffering, suffering from relationships, from loss, from disappointments, from all kinds of things. And so just like we've been saying, uh, in the instructions, when pain arises, when difficulty arises, sometimes we can, you know, wish ourselves some, some metta and that, that can help relieve. But more often than not, we have to hold ourselves. We have to hold that experience with a sense of kindness, with a sense of tenderness. That in itself is an act of compassion. So often, um, and I've he I hear this a lot when people say, well, I've, you know, I've, I've been going through this difficult thing and today, and I say the phrases of loving kindness, may I be well, may I be happy, and it just doesn't feel like it's, it feels like it's on, the, it's on a different wavelength, like I'm, I'm feeling miserable and I'm trying to wish myself happiness. Well, like, what's the point of that? Like, I'm, it sucks. I hate everything, you know. And, um, 
And so often what, what I think needs to happen is, you know, if, it, if, it's to the, if it's to a level of severity where we can't just keep on with the phrases and it passes, you know, as we've said, it's, it's really appropriate to stop, to feel the, what's happening, to feel the pain, to hold it with a sense of kindness, with a sense of care. And, um, and occasionally you can, you can modify the phrase. You, know, you, can, you, can, you can use a compassion phrase that really speaks more directly to the suffering. So the compassion phrases are very simple. You know, may I be free of pain and suffering? May you be free of pain and suffering? May you hold your suffering with ease? That's a phrase I often use if I'm going through some difficulty. I say, may I, may I hold this experience with ease? May I hold this experience with kindness? Knowing that it will pass, but the more I'm able to hold it with some some ease, the, 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 less, the less suffering I'll be adding to it. Usually we have an experience that's painful and then we add suffering to it by resisting it, fighting it, complaining, feeling self-pitiful, thinking it's going to last forever. So and often, especially when we get pain that's coming from a younger place, from, an, uh, from a time from earlier in our lives, often what's being asked of us is to embrace that with, with kindness in a way that we weren't able to or didn't receive when we were younger. So when these, when these parts of ourselves arise, these aspects of ourselves, just ask yourself whether you can turn to them with kindness. There's a beautiful poem from poet Rashani that speaks to what happens when we turn towards these more difficult places in ourselves. She says, there is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss, out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole while learning to sing. So I'm sure many, if not all of you, have had those times where we go into those places of darkness and despair and pain. And the ability to navigate that with an open heart is what allows those experiences to transform when we can when we can marry the qualities of awareness and mindfulness with kind, compassionate heart, that's what allows these things to heal and transform. So one of the things that I notice uh, comes up a lot, uh, in particularly in meta retreats, although I see it a lot in Vipassana retreats too, is um, the suffering that we, uh, uh, that we carry that's somewhat self-inflicted the ways that we are cruel to ourselves, the ways that we talk to ourselves, the way that we're mean to ourselves, the way that we're judging of ourselves, the way that we push ourselves or, or put it, you know, compare ourselves to incredibly high standards. Very painful, very pervasive domains uh, in, in this culture, in this time. And again, I think these, this, this, uh, well, one, I think that the practice of metta is probably the best antidote to all these flavors of self-hatred, self-rejection, 
self-criticism, self-judgment, that the, the, the phrases of metta, of compassion, uh, a direct antidote to those messages we may keep repeating to ourselves that we're not good enough, we're not worthy enough, we're not smart enough, we're not spiritual enough, or whatever the mantra is of the day. So one of the things that really helped me transform my critic, which was, um, you know, had a megaphone most of the time when I was on retreat. <laughs> Bad yogi, terrible person, unworthy, whatever I had to say. Um, what shifted uh, at some point in my practice, uh, uh, I began to just let in the, the, the impact of those voices, to really feel what it was like to, to, to talk to myself like that. And it was brutal, it was horrible, it was really painful. When Rather than just thinking, oh yeah, it's a bit thoughts, and yeah, yeah, you know, I don't really take them seriously, or yeah, I'm really silly, but you know, who cares? It's like actually feeling what the impact is in my heart. And it was like, it was horrible. It was incredibly painful to really let in how, what it's like to talk to yourself like that and to believe it every day, every five or 10 minutes of the day. You know, if somebody, if our good friend said one of those things twice to us in a day, we would, you know, tell them to stop. But we quite happily let our critic go drone on and on and on as a stuck tape recorder. So, um, so that was very transformative for me to actually feel the impact and, and, and acknowledge the suffering nature of that. That allowed the compassion to arise. And actually what arose out of that was not so much, you know, sometimes we think of kindness and, and compassion as you know, certainly culturally as somewhat weak. I think Sharon was alluding to that the other day. Um, what, it, what arose for me was a certain fierceness, was that I was not gonna put up with that anymore. Like stop, like enough, this is not true, I've heard enough, go away, thank you very much, go bother somebody else today. So there's a place for that fierce compassion where we, where that's somewhat self-protective. So just to reiterate the phrases that, that, that you know, is, uh, when we teach the, the compassion as a Brahma-Vihara practice, as a Bhavana practice, as a cultivation practice, um, the phrases are, may I be free of pain and suffering? May you be free of pain and suffering? And then a couple of phrases that I add extra to that. One is, um, I care that you suffer. I care that you're suffering. May you hold your suffering with ease. So again, you can modify these phrases to something that speaks to you. So when, when you encounter, when you're in a difficult place, or you know somebody's in a very difficult place, you can offer that phrase. And I think particularly as Dharma practitioners, it's important that, um, you know, and, I, and I, as over the years, I've seen why compassion is more and more integral to this path. I didn't understand that fully as when in the first few years of my practice, but because as awareness grows, we begin to see more aspects of ourselves. And it's very easy when we become more aware to see, to become more judgmental, because we might see, for instance, the way that we're always getting caught in desire and grasping. You know, the Buddha talks about desire you know, attachment being the cause of suffering, and here we are attached to everything, you know, chocolate and friends and car and movies and luxury and cup of tea and this and that, and it's okay. You know, 
know, there's the, there's to, to, what's important is to see the suffering in that, to see the suffering in attachment, to see the suffering in delusion. You know, and the suffering that happens when we when we get caught in resistance. You know, we resist the cold weather, you know, or the food, or the pain in our knees, or the boredom in the meditation, and we sort of check out. What's it like to to open to the suffering of that? The suffering that comes when we resist our experience, fundamental cause of suffering. Or when we believe our thoughts to be true, very pervasive cause of suffering. And again, not to judge ourselves, but to feel, oh yeah, isn't it suffering when I'm deluded? When I think, if I just have a certain experience, I'm going to be happy. If only they serve coffee in the morning, my meditations would be, you know, I'd be nirvana. (laughs) If only they had steak in the evening, I'd stay awake till midnight. You know, if only I could leave here and get a beer and watch some TV, I, you know, <laughs> that would be really compassionate to myself, you know. So this beautiful quality um, has some obstacles. There's some reasons why we don't just naturally, you know, all, you know, fall down and love each other and feel infinite compassion to all beings everywhere in all times. So, mainly because we, you know, we, we, we're lovers of the pleasant and, you know, we avoid the unpleasant and we avoid pain and we avoid suffering. So, our instinctual response to anything unpleasant is to, is to contract, to avoid, to run away, to numb out, to distract. So, instead of having that opportunity of opening to suffering being the doorway to compassion, we just shut down. We shut down, we numb out, or we react. We, 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 we lash out against the source of suffering. That's so common. We, we get into blame when, when, we, when we're hurting. Rather than feeling it, we blame, we get angry. All defenses against feeling. And they all stop the, the, the natural compassion to flow. You know, I notice this um, when, I'm, when I'm particularly reactive to somebody, but especially if they're friends of mine, um, you know, I just see how, you know, when they're going through s- particular states of suffering or pain that I can't deal with them myself, you know, I, I, that there's an instinctual pushing away because I haven't worked with that in myself. So the more we work with those aspects in ourselves, the more we can open to the suffering in others and, and open to compassion. Often there's a, there's a primal fear that if we open to suffering of ourselves or another person or the world particularly, we're going to be overwhelmed, we'll be flooded, we'll drown, and we'll never get out. It's a very common belief. Rather than seeing that when we let allow suffering to be, it, we, it, it, it's, it's present and it flows through, it moves. When we actually keep things at bay, that's when things get very static and slow down. Or more often, we're more comfortable thinking about our pain or discomfort or difficulty than feeling it. How often are you sitting in meditation analyzing why you're unhappy or why you're feeling painful or why your relationship is so miserable or why your heart is, you know, we, we get into, you know, maybe when I was three and my mother didn't give me that candy, you know, and we get lost in thinking about our experience. I mean, the, the doorway is through feeling, through opening the heart. So um, the last thing I want to say about compassion is um, 
is the more dynamic aspect to it that um, that uh, dynamic and also courageous aspect to it. What you're doing here, sitting in silence for seven days without distraction, is very courageous. It takes a lot of courage to look at yourselves, to face yourselves. It's very ironic that people, when you say to someone, oh, I'm going on retreat, they often say, oh, that's a bit of a cop-out. That's not real life. <laughs> you know, you're just checking out from the real world. You know, well, I'm not quite, sure, not quite sure what world they're living in, but this is the real world, and it's without distraction. And we're looking in the mirror, and it takes a lot of courage, a lot of honesty to be with ourselves and to look at both the beautiful aspects, the difficult aspects, the painful aspects, the things we're completely horrified about seeing. And yet, the more that we do that, the more that we face the difficulty, the challenges, the more we are apt, the more we're able to face difficulty and challenges in our lives. There's a direct correlation. This is a, I'm going to read part of a, uh, an article from a, a meditator who is also a Vietnam vet who lives in Colorado. He says, um, this is after he'd done his first Vipassana retreat, he said, it had been eight years since my return from Vietnam when I attended my first Vipassana retreat. At least twice a week for all those years, I had sustained the same recurring nightmares common to many combat veterans, dreaming that I was back there facing the same dangers, witnessing the same incalculable suffering, and waking suddenly alert, sweating, and scared. On retreat, I began to realize that the mind was gradually yielding, I'm, on retreat I began to realize that the mind was gradually yielding up memories so terrifying, so life-denying, and so spiritually eroding that I had, a re I had ceased to be consciously aware that I was still carrying them around all this time. I was in short beginning to undergo a profound catharsis by openly facing that which I had most feared and had therefore most strongly suppressed. What also arose at the retreat for the first time was a deep sense of compassion for my past and present. Self-compassion for the idealistic young would-be physician forced to witness the most unspeakable obscenities of which humankind is capable, and for the haunted veteran who could not let go of memories he since of the memories he could not acknowledge he carried. Since that first retreat, the compassion has stayed with me. So this is courageous practice, to look in the mirror, to, to face those, those uh, difficulties and demons and challenges that we carry around. This is uh, another way of putting it from Suzuki Roshi. He said, you don't really know what it means to sit in meditation until there is some great difficulty in your life. Not until something happens like the grave illness of someone you love. And then you're tearing your hair out and pa pacing back and forth in the corridor of the hospital and there's nothing you can do. And finally, you take a seat in the midst of your fears and your sorrows and thoughts and worries, and you just sit in the middle of it all. And that's the moment that you begin to understand the power of your practice. So I'm reading those because sometimes it can feel, we can, we can feel very disconnected and cut off from our lives here. And, it, and sometimes it's hard to make that bridge. And um, I just want to you know, reiterate that this practice really does 
can transform how we move back in our lives. So one of the most beautiful qualities that I know in this spiritual life and also really in life in general is the quality of um, when compassion um, is taken to what I think of its sort of utmost degree, it becomes this quality of bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is the quality that wishes to relieve the suffering of all life everywhere. It's the quality that feels the suffering of the world and wants to, and wants to relieve it in, in whatever way it can. And the Buddhist tradition is full of beautiful stories and figures of people who've embodied that, past and present. And I wanted to read a story um, about Mahagoshananda, who was a wonderful uh, Theravadan monk who was Cambodian, who uh, was a monk from the age of, I think, you know, eight or nine or something like that, and lived till a grand old age. And um, while the genocide was going on in Cambodia, he, uh, several years prior to that, had moved to Thailand to study meditation with Ajahn Dhammadaro and other teachers and didn't find out about the, the genocide as many people didn't until he went to work as a monk on the borders of Thailand and Burma to, uh, for the, with the refugees. And he found out that all 17 members of his family had been killed. And so um, he began to do uh, peace walks um, his response to the, the you know, in, um, to the uh, inconceivable amount of suffering that his people had experienced, they'd mostly wiped out all the monks in the monasteries and killed several million people during the genocide. His response after the war, even when there was still uh, conflict going on, was to take the Buddha's teaching of love and compassion uh, to back to the people who'd been uh, deprived of their religious practice for, for many years. And this is, um, this is partly uh, some from an obituary. It says, wherever Goshananda walked, he would, okay, let me start again. Wherever Goshananda walked would often be in remote jungle places where it was neither safe nor quiet. Care was necessary for the ground had been sown with landmines up to the edge of the trails. And alone, million, alone many hundreds of people followed him on these trails, or these Dharmanyatras as they were called, well after the signing of the peace accords to end a civil war between the remnants of the murderous Khmer's, Khmer Rouge and the new Vietnamese-backed Cambodian government. He often found war still raging. Shells screamed over the walkers and firefights broke out round them. Some were killed, the more timid ran home but Goshenanda had chosen his routes deliberately to pass through areas of conflict. Sometimes the walkers found themselves caught up in long, line, long lines of refugees, foot sore like them, trudging alongside ox carts and bicycles piled high with mattresses and pans and live chickens. We must find the courage to leave our temples, he would say, and enter these suffering-filled temples of human experience. And so he'd wander around the rice paddies and the villages and the jungles and the forests of Cambodia. And he would have this chant, hatred never ceases with hatred, only by love alone does hatred cease. And he would chant that. And this is one of the most beloved chants of, of the Cambodian people. And the, the article goes on, as they 
caught Goshenanda's chant. Soldiers laid down their arms and knelt by the side of the road. Villagers brought water to be blessed and plunged glowing incense sticks into it to signal the end of the war. So there's just one beautiful story of one man's response to suffering, to, to how to meet the suffering of his people. And so it expresses this, this dynamic quality of compassion, that it's not just a feeling and a quality, but it, 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 it um, impels us, it moves us to do something with ourselves, with another, with loved ones, with, with widening circles of people. Shantideva, one of the great Tibetan teachers and writers from the 8th century said, I should dispel the pain of others because it hurts like my own. Just like feeding myself, I hope for nothing in return. Or His Holiness the Dalai Lama on compassion said, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. So the invitation is to learn how to work with our own suffering, to be able to open to that in ourselves and in others. So, so it allows this quality of compassion to come forth. And so we can be a, fo- we can be a force, a movement in this world that can bring about some small alleviation of suffering. This is from Rumi. He said, there is no companion but love, no starting or finishing, yet there is a road. The friend calls from there. Why do you hesitate when lives are in danger? So um, so the, the other Brahma Vihara that I want to talk about t- tonight was Mudita which um, literally means to be pleased or gladness. We translate it as uh, appreciative joy, sometimes translated as sympathetic joy. And it's the quality that when our heart meets the joy or the happiness or the success of another person or group of people or situation, it's a very delightful, very beautiful, heartwarming, glowing, joyous quality. One of my favorite stories of that was when a colleague of ours was teaching here a few years ago, and um, she was teaching the morning instructions, and before she gave the instructions, she said, I just have a little announcement. Uh, Today, I've just been made a grandmother. And the whole room, we were sitting up here, and the whole room because from our perspective, just kind of this whole mudita wave just glowed, smiles, people were teary. And it was such a beautiful example of mudita, this quality that, that is delights and t- is touched by the, the joy of another. It's, it's contagious. It's, again, another way that we feel that sense of not separateness. The Buddha talked about it as being the mind deliverance of gladness that it protects the mind, it protects the mind from unwholesome forces and and frees us from this idea of separateness. He also said it was the rarest of the Brahma Viharas, the the rarest quality amongst loving kindness and compassion and equanimity. So um, 
this is a beautiful quality and again it's like all the other Brahma Viharas it can be developed it can be cultivated what I love about the Buddha's teaching is it's really practical it's very pragmatic you know I was raised Catholic and one of the main teachings that I loved from Jesus was to love to love one's neighbor to you know to show that spirit of compassion but I always wondered well how do you do that <laughs> nobody ever told me they just said love your neighbor well, I don't like my neighbors. <laughs> so what am I going to do with that? <laughs> they're loud and they're dog barks, you know. So um, the Buddha was incredibly practical. And he said, you know, and he gave these vast array of maps and, and qualities that we can know and understand and experience and also cultivate. So... Um, so we can, you know, the Buddha gave this teaching about inclining the mind, whatever we incline the mind towards, that the mind becomes. So if we incline our mind towards feeling critical and judgmental of everybody that we see, guess what? We'll become judgmental and critical. If we incline our mind towards looking for the goodness, looking toward not being Pollyannish, but just looking for the goodness and the beauty and the joy, guess what happens? We start to be touched by this quality. So um, there's, there's many, pl even though this is a rare quality, according to the Buddha, we, there are places that we can, that I like to um, consciously turn my attention to as a way of generating. So um, one place that is natural for me, and I know for many of you, is watching families, watching parents with their children, but then particularly watching children, just their natural spontaneous glee and excitement, especially when they're young, that sense of um, sort of uncontained boundless joy and curiosity about bugs and beetles and mud and you know creepy crawlies and bogies and um, when I travel when I go to airports I, I if I have a lot of time to kill I like to hang out by the the, you know, the the exit gate where the families reunite you know and often it's families from all different countries I used to do this in London a lot at uh, Heathrow very very diverse London's very diverse and so the you know I'd see these beautiful African families and folks coming from India and China and it was just this you know you tell these families may not have had been together for a while and so the extended family was there and just these joyous meetings that was a great place to practice mudita so when you go home for those of you who are flying see if you if you can get to practice that um, my favorite recent example was uh, watching, I was uh, in Hawaii uh, during uh, the inauguration day and uh, I happened to be in this, in this house that had this humongous TV screen. So uh, I was watching TV, I got it really early because it was started at like five in the morning or something in Hawaii. And I did just so much opportunity for feeling mudita, you know, seeing these beautiful people witnessing, hearing the speeches, these beautiful African-American women and men just weeping and weeping and just, it was just such a beautiful, heart-opening, joyous experience. And, and I, I just noticed how much mudita there was. Of course, if you voted Republican, you might not quite be feeling that, but that's <laughs> another story. <laughs> but maybe so. I mean, I, I had to watch the uh, inauguration on Fox News, and I have to say that even some of the folks on Fox were um, touched by the day. <laughs> So when we get how beautiful this quality is, we naturally start looking for it. Um, 
for me, I, you know, another place that, I, that I'm touched by this is, is in nature. You know, nature is just abounding with, with abundance and joy and life. And, uh, and, and I know a lot of people like to practice meditation, walking meditation outside for that reason, because it touches the heart. You know, we're uplifted. We feel that sense of joy and that, that, that allows the, like we can coast on that, on that energy. I'm going to read this part of a poem from Mary Oliver, who so beautifully expresses this quality of mudita in nature. She says, my work is loving the world. Here the sunflowers, there the hummingbird, equal seekers of sweetness. Here the quickening yeast, there the blue plums. Here they clam deep in the speckled sand. Are my boots old? Is my coat torn? Am I no longer young and still not half perfect? Let me keep my mind on what matters, though which is my work, which is mostly standing still and learning to be astonished. The Phoebe, the Delphinium, the sheep in the pasture and the pasture. My work, which is mostly rejoicing since all the ingredients are here. My work, which is gratitude to be given a mind and a heart and these body clothes, a mouth with which to give shouts of joy to the moth and the wren and the sleepy dug up clam. So, endless opportunities to practice mudita. The Dalai Lama says famously, when I practice mudita, it increases my chances of happiness by six billion to one. (laughs) So if you're a betting person, that's pretty good odds. (laughs) Or as Blake put it, he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. He who kisses the joy as it flies and doesn't hold on lives in eternity's sunrise. And, his, and, and uh, as his wife used to say, oh, I miss my husband so, he's so often in paradise. <laughs> Which you get when you read his poetry. He was in another plane. So given that this is such a beautiful quality, again, why don't we hang out here more often? What gets in the way of this natural capacity to feel gladness, to feel celebration or rejoicing or mutual happiness. So the far enemy, as it's said, is um, envy or jealousy. We're just downright jealous that someone is having a good time because we're feeling miserable and my knee hurts and they look like they're in Nirvana and I hate that because I want to be there. Oh, you've got a new job in Hawaii. Great. And double your salary. (laughs) And you've met your soulmate too, and she's going with you. Great. (laughs) I'm so happy for you. (laughs) Sound familiar? I remember when I was doing uh, some some meta practice here, and it was uh, I was um, doing some jhana practice and my absorption practice, and I was for some reason interviewing with uh, a friend of mine, which is very unusual to have dual interviews, but that's what was happening for some reason. And she's uh, was having this incredibly blissful time and really deep meditations, and I was having a hard time and struggling, and so we'd get to report together about our meditations. <laughs> And I'd notice myself as I was doing my walking, and I'd see her walking up and down, looking really blissful. And I'd be like, God, I hope tomorrow it's not as good for her. 
we're human. <laughs> so also we we in, in, in the same the same same example. Um, we think that happiness is a limited pool, right? Well, if they're really happy, and those people are happy too, my God, like there's only going to be like this teeny little pea left of happiness for me. <laughs> or we compare, you know, if you know they're doing so well, you know, they're so successful, and you know they've made so much money, and everybody's losing it, and I've lost all mine, but they've 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 doubled their earnings last year. Well, then what does that say about me? Or what stops our capacity for appreciating their joy, or celebrating their joy, is we, we have some judgments about what brings them happiness. You know, maybe we're an art snob, you know, or we, um, you know, don't like the same football team that just won the Super Bowl, you know, so, or the same, or the, we don't like the person who got elected president. Um, I know some folks who love going to Disneyland, um, who I know quite well, and they come back and always raving to me about Disneyland, and I'm not really crazy about Disneyland, so I can't quite get into mood there for them. It's like Mickey Mouse, like that really does it for you? I don't know. <laughs> oh, it's just a habit, you know. We're just habituated to um, looking at people's faults, looking at people's foibles, looking at what's wrong with ourselves, with others, and so we just don't see the beauty or the joy or the delight because we're just we just we have a certain lens so we miss those opportunities so you know all these different ways they're um they're uh, ways that we close our heart the ways that we we don't we're not able to expand the, the natural capacity of the heart um, and it's painful you know we talk about being green with envy you know, it's not a very, it's not like hip, you know, eco-green. It's green, suffering green. So, um, so as, you, you know, as you practice in these days to, to here, you can just bring this quality to mind a little to notice what brings gladness. And I know when I first started practicing metta, and uh, I think it was Sharon um, said to me, uh, you know, Practice in a way, practice in, in the conditions that support gladness, the happiness, allow the matter to, to flow. And, and for me, that was being outside. I was like, really, I can go outside and practice? That's okay. So it's not cheating that I, that I, I be in a place that brings gladness or this lovely walking room behind us that has this lovely light at dusk. And so, um, so paying attention to what brings gladness in your heart in these days and when you go home. Noticing the habit of fault finding, seeing the ways that, that you contract around feeling, feeling this, this, this more celebratory uh, quality. And appreciating and another, another doorway, I think, into, into mudita is, um, especially for oneself, is to uh, to appreciate the blessings and the and that we have in our lives, the abundance, the good fortune that IMS is here, that the Dharma lineage has survived till this time, that we can practice, that we have community, that we have teachers, that we have people supporting us and feeding us, and you know this incredible blessing in our lives. You know, I think one of the another one of the blocks to to mudita for ourselves, for appreciating the the, the, the happiness and success of ourselves is entitlement. When we, when we think we're entitled to everything, we no longer appreciate 
the 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 small or large things that that, that we have in our lives. I remember reading the book. Uh, I think it was made into a film, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Beautiful book about um, the, an editor, French editor of Elle magazine, who uh, had a tragic car accident and, and his neck broke, his neck, uh, his spinal cord severed at the neck, and the only thing that worked was his l blinking left eye. And it was called locked in disease, and he was in this diving bell, somewhat cage for the, the year, last year of his life. And a lot of the books about recounting some of the joys of eating and smelling and stroking his child's hair and just those simple things that, that touch our hearts. So the phrase that goes with mudita is um, uh, something like, I delight in your happiness or your success. May you, or actually, the, the, I think that the, 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 the simple phrase is, may your happiness and success continue to grow. But I also use the phrase, I delight in your happiness or success or good fortune. May your happiness and success continue to grow. So imagine what that would be like to live in a world where we had that kind of appreciation. You know, Maybe we don't appreciate others because when we were growing up or in some situation where we go home and say, hey, guess what happened to me? You know, I just got, you know, 4.0 grade average or I just got, into, you know, I passed some exam or I won this competition and someone goes, ah, ah I'll do your homework then. And that was great. You know, where we haven't, maybe we haven't been acknowledged in that and so we haven't learned that capacity. So just to summarize, again, going back to this idea of the heart being this, ju this multifaceted jewel, that the, the core of that jewel is this quality of loving kindness that we're developing, we're developing so patiently in this retreat, and how these qualities complement each other, and they arise so beautifully and effortlessly according to the situation. It's kind of miraculous how this the quality of compassion arises naturally in response to suffering. Naturally, mudita arises in response to happiness and gladness and success. And that what keeps these grounded is the quality of equanimity, which we'll hear more about later. So I want to leave you with um, a story that um, kind of intertwines all four of these qualities of loving kindness, compassion, mudita and equanimity. So sit comfortably. It's from Naomi Shihab Nye, wonderful Palestinian poet. It's called Wandering Around an Albuquerque Airport Terminal. After learning my flight was detained four hours, I heard the announcement, if anyone in the vicinity of gate 4A understands any Arabic, please come to the gate immediately. Well, one pauses these days. Gate 4A was, on my, was my own gate, so I went there. An older woman in full traditional Palestinian dress, just like my grandma wore, was crumpled to the floor, wailing loudly. Help, said the flight, person, flight service person. Talk to her. What is her problem? We told her the flight was going to be four hours late, and she did this. I put my arm around her and spoke to her haltingly in Arabic. The minute she heard any words she knew, however, however poorly used, she stopped crying. She thought our flight had been canceled entirely. She needed to be in El Paso for some major medical treatment the following day. 
I said, no, no, we're fine. You'll get there. Just we'll get there late. Who is picking you up? Let's call him and tell him. We called her son and I spoke with him in English. I told him I would stay with his mother till we got on the plane and would ride next to her. It was Southwest. She talked to him. Then we called her other sons just for the fun of it. Then we called my dad. And he and she spoke for a while in Arabic and found out, of course, they had 10 shared friends. <laughs> then I thought just for the heck of it, why not call some Palestinian poets I know and let them chat with her. This all took about two hours. She was laughing a lot by then, telling, her, telling about her life, answering questions. She'd pulled out a sack of homemade mamul cookies, little, little powdered sugarly, sugar crumbly mounds stuffed with dates and nuts out of her bag and was offering them to all the women at the gate. To my amazement, not a single woman declined one. It was like a sacrament. The traveler from Argentina, the traveler from California, the lovely woman from Loretto, we were all covered with the same powdered sugar and smiling. There is no better cookies. And then the airline broke out the free beverages from huge coolers, non-alcoholic, and the two little girls for our flight, one African-American, one Mexican-American, ran around serving us all apple juice and lemonade, and they too were covered with powdered sugar. And I noticed my new best friend, by now we were holding hands, had a potted plant poking out of her bag, some medicinal thing with green furry leaves. Such an old country traveling tradition, always carry a plant, always stay rooted to somewhere. And I look around the gate of late and weary ones and thought, this is the world I want to live in, the shared world. Not a single person in this gate, once the crying of confusion stopped, has seemed apprehensive about any other person. They took the cookies. I wanted to hug all those other women too. This can still happen anywhere. Not everything is lost. So let's sit for a moment. peoples and all beings know the qualities of compassion, mudita, and love. So, thank you for your attention. So we'll have some walking and some sitting at 9 o'clock and some chanting. Thanks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.